Welcome to Forever a Golden Bear, brought to you by the Big C Society, the Letter Winner Society of Cal Athletics, and its alumni network. We interview varsity letter winners from Cal who are excelling in their post-sports careers. Through their stories, we demystify how to ladder into various professional roles, examine what a day in the life in those roles looks like, and explore whether the athlete's mindset, disciplines, and sensibilities provides an edge in post-sports careers. This episode, and actually the first 13 episodes of Forever a Golden Bear, is brought to you by a regular donor to the Big C Society who shall remain nameless, who made his gift in honor of the thousands of walk-on athletes for the Golden Bears across all of its sports. Anonymous donor, you know who you are. Thank you. Thank you from all of us. Your generosity is the fuel for what we produce here. For anyone else who has an interest in supporting this podcast, please go to bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. Each $500 donation funds one episode of this show. Hello, everyone. This is Robert Paler, former Cal rugby player and now executive director of the Big C Society. Together with us today are Joe Roof, the president of the Big C Society, Sean Paga, the liaison director for rugby on the Big C Society board of directors, and our special guest today, Dr. Ian Tong, formerly of Cal Rugby, and more recently, the chief medical officer of Doctor on Demand, the nation's leading virtual care medical practice and an assistant clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University Medical School. For the benefit of our listeners, Ian, I'm going to start with a little background on you. Ian is an Oakland-born native, was raised in Fresno, and returned to the Bay Area to attend Cal, whereas he was a member of three national championship winning teams and was a collegiate rugby All-American. In 1994, Ian graduated from Cal with his undergraduate degree in English, which we are going to have to dive into because I don't know how you went from an English major to a doctor. But before we get going any further, Sean, is there anything else you'd like to add to introduce Ian to our audience? Yeah, no, can't wait to hear about that transition from English major to to medical school. Uh, But yeah, no, Ian, thanks for taking the time. Uh, Obviously, you had a fantastic career as an All-American and then transitioned into the business world and have done really well, not only as a doctor, but a doctor in demand. And then with the nonprofit work that you do with Rugby Opportunity Fund and the mentorship. So just can't wait for everyone to hear about your story and journey and, and some of the work that you're doing outside of work as well on the mentorship side would, would be would be fantastic. But yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? Hey, you guys. Thanks so much. Uh, Robert, Joe, Sean. Um, I'm doing great. And, um, you know, as as great as can be when we are in the, you know, at the hopefully tail end of a global pandemic. I mean, I think a lot of us have had the hardest hardest year of our lives, probably. Uh, No, you know, that's not I don't think that's an overstatement. Um, But uh, but, you know, we're all doing well. I've been lucky to have a you know, my family stayed healthy. And so. Uh, definitely a privilege to be here with you all. Um, you know, there's some there's some good friends on this screen that I'm looking at. And so I'm happy to share and do what I can for the Cal family. Absolutely. Well, we're so happy to have you here today. And for my cur- first question, I want to go back to that earlier comment, which is how you went from being an English major to going to medical school. Now, forgive my ignorance, but I was under the impression that chemistry, organic chemistry or biology are the type of pre-med majors that open the door to medical school. Can you tell us the story of how you decided you wanted to pursue a career in medicine and that journey that took you from Cal to the University of Chicago's Pritzker School of Medicine? 
Ah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it wasn't a straight path. I'll, I'll uh, just say that right up front. Um, maybe to, you know, kind of roll back the clock a bit. I was, uh, you know, I was, um, pretty, you know, confident in myself and my abilities entering, you know, I was a good student in high school, entered Cal thinking, oh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm quote unquote smart. Um, and so, uh, so I said, you know, I, I'll take uh, Spanish too, and I'll take Chem 1A and I'll take all this stuff together. Uh, and that was probably, um, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the humbling part of my background, they said, Oh, well, that's really hard to do. And I actually, and I, Oh, and I'll join a fraternity. That was the other really brilliant idea uh, <laughs> that I tried to achieve all of that in the first, first semester of college. Um, and so, uh, so no, so I ended up on academic probation actually after my first semester. And I think it's important for everybody to, to know that this journey for me did not start on the smooth and easy down, you know, down, uh, downhill path to getting, to, to, to combining um, my my background and what I thought were my smarts to uh, to my eventual uh, career outcome. So, um, but I did enter as a molecular cell biology major and um, and actually struggled in that Chem One A course. I did not pass the course the first time I took it, and that was a very um, important humbling moment for me because I think I learned right away that um, you know this isn't going to be easy. One, uh, so and and I think every person who you know, builds their grit and uh, determination has to have that moment, honestly, where they're like, oh, it's not just easy all the time. Um, and so so I actually had to face that when I was 18 years of age, you know, kind of a couple months into into college career. So that was really good. And I did. So my advisor said, you know, you should change your major. And I did. I thought that was that was reasonable advice. The thing that I didn't like that they said, though, was but you and you really don't have a chance. Like, you know, forget about becoming a doctor. This is not an option for you. So that was all feedback that was given. I took some of it. Right. Some practical advice seemed good. But I also blocked out the parts that I didn't think I wanted to hear. So I continued to take my my science courses and you can do that. And so so a smart decision there is take coursework that you're interested in, that you can excel in. But if you have a career path um, and there's nothing wrong with you putting together the coursework that you need to also satisfy whatever that future career path is. And so I, I did that. So I actually took a number. I took over my half my pre-med still while I was uh, pursuing, a, you know, another course of study that I was also equally interested in. The other thing, the reason I made that change was also, um, I loved English, but also it gave me flexibility. So when I looked at across the four years or at least the first two years of college and the molecular cell biology major, most of my coursework was predetermined of what I was going to be, what I was going to have to take. And, um, and so, and when I looked at English, it opened it up and I could take ethnic studies courses and film courses and, and just, and really take a lot more breadth of study. And so, so I took that approach uh, to, to doing that. So the number one major, to answer your question directly of like, well, how does that journey, how do you bridge those two? The number one majors or, or group of majors that for people who enter medical school are in the sciences, typically the biological sciences, right? So like molecular cell biology at Cal would be like that classic major that people then continue on and then they go into, you know, but there's no pre-med major at Cal. So you, so you're in a, field of study. But when I was looking to apply to medical school as a non-traditional student, and I looked at the statistics, and so I, and I became a student of like, what does it take to get to medical school? Um, I saw that, yeah, those sciences are the number one majors um, or the most common majors. The second most common major, um, and, and I would say it's an, is a non-science major, actually is English. So English is the most common non-science major that people 
go to before they, you know, that, that are actually gain admissions into medical school. So, so I knew right there, there was something, there was a story there that no one actually told me about when I, you know, when I was entering Cal and the pathway to becoming a doctor, but I realized that there's a whole lot of people in the humanities that, um, that do this other more broad course of study, but then can still gain admission into medical school. And so I was like, oh, I just got to figure out what that pathway is and make sure I check all of the right boxes and not give up on my dream if that, if that is in, uh, in fact what I want to end up doing. Yeah, I'm really happy you brought that up because, you know, as a recent graduate from UC Berkeley, I have friends who you know, were looking to take that path in the beginning. And Chem 1A is known as one of those weeder courses. And there's a lot of people who have a really rough time. And then they hear those same words that you just told them. You need to pivot. You need to find a new career. This isn't the thing for you. Um, but seeing you go through that period and keep, you know, keep your eyes focused on where you want it to be. It's evidence, you know, of being able to take that journey to put together a formidable application and to pursue this passion that you want to pursue in your career. And I want to talk a little bit more about putting together that competitive um, portfolio to present to medical school. You know, I know that the test scores are pretty consequential, or at least I've read that the, the test scores and whatnot are pretty consequential into getting into medical school. Can you talk about, you know, studying for the MCAT and do you have any any study hacks that you could give to yeah, our listeners? Yeah, oh, this is good. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah. So real quick, uh, one thing that's important uh, probably about that, that so first of all, when I was on academic probation, my like my um, my my mindset was like panicked. Right. I was like, oh. And so I spent a lot of time thinking at that moment, what am I going to do? Like, and how do I you know, like what am I going to do with my life? I, I, I didn't have the expanded kind of options uh, there to think about. So so we might want to get into that into that later. But all I, but I'll just summarize it to say I entered college with a fixed mindset of who I was and that I was smart and I had skills and talents. And, and those, and, and I glided on those probably through high school, but at college, yeah, Chem 1A was like, you can't glide here. Like, that's not going to be it. You have to be a hard worker as well. And so not knowing it and it, cause it, cause it wasn't called that then, but I think I learned to be a hard worker. That's one, that's, that's what we would call it then. But now I think we know enough from social psychology to say, actually what I was doing though, was I was changing my mindset from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. And I think that's an extremely important thing for anyone that yeah finds themselves in my position, but honestly for all of us that have high ambition and want to be successful, ask yourself what is your mindset? Do you call you see yourself as being able to do things or do you see yourself as being able to learn things? And once I, you know and to, and to, and to apply hard work. And so I became a believer that the application uh, that I could apply myself and with effort uh, I could I could do whatever I wanted. And I say that because rugby and my experience as an athlete is all is like, I think that was, I didn't learn those things independently. It wasn't just about schoolwork. It wasn't like a switch went off in my brain of like, oh, I'm fixed mindset. Now I'm growth mindset. I learned about hard work and being challenged partially through my experience as an athlete. So let's, so then fast forward to like, practically what do you need to do? So absolutely. When I graduated, I did have a bit of a problem. I had done really well in bringing my GPA up. I worked really hard. So I got it to the right place. Uh, I took some courses at Cal, but I, after graduating, I took additional courses, um, uh, organic chemistry and other courses, uh, outside of Cal. So I did some of that at SF, SF state. Um, and then I came back and took biochem at Cal. So, you know, I was like, I kind of mixed and matched the pieces and the coursework together, but got to the GA, GPA to what I knew was like, okay, this is like, you know, just above the minimum, but it's good enough, you know, for now it should be good enough as long as I do well on the, the, the big exam, right. Which is the medical college admissions test, the MCAT. And so, so then I, you know, I was working, I didn't have a lot of money. 
supporting myself, but uh, there was investment. I could I could impl- I could uh, invest about uh, twelve. I, th- I don't know what it is now, but then at the time I think it was like a thousand twelve hundred dollars, like which is a lot of money, uh, you know, to a new grad uh, to take the oh, yeah. prep course. But I just saw that as like over the course of a medical education, I'm going to invest hundred uh, over a hundred thousand dollars probably in myself for this education. This thousand dollars is one percent. So I'm just going to start my investment now. I'm going to pay for this course because to start that journey, I have to get at least a minimum score. And again, I learned from that my weakest subject going in because I in my mind, because of chemistry was I'm not good in the fixed mindset. I'm not good at chemistry. I need to work really hard on the physical science portion of the exam. It turns out that's what I scored the best on. Uh, uh, compared to all of my cohort that took the test that year, the thing that I scored the best on against all of them was the thing that I was the worst at in my mind going in. And so that's just a really good example of like, no, it's, it's not about what you know and who you are, what you're good at. It's about what you, what you're willing to put the work into. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. What a, what an inspiring story. And by the way, uh, Ian, I was, I was also an English major. So this is, uh, I love the, the positive, you know, English major exposure going on here. Um, for the, so for the benefit of our student athlete listeners uh, who are considering medical school right now, you know, I'm hoping you can paint a picture of what the experience is really like once you get there. So like, when did you start dissecting cadavers and when did you start practicing slicing real people open and giving injections and so forth? And in order to absorb the encyclopedia of information about the body, you know, with unfamiliar names like apthos, stomatitis, and bradykinesia, and kaleidocolithiasis. Like, how much Keep did going, you study? Man, it's music. You go. How, how, how much did you have to study daily? I mean, it just seems like, from a practical yeah. standpoint, it must have been a lot because there's there's quite those aren't like the most uh, intuitive names. Just... Yeah, no, no, that's a great question. I mean, you there's no quite with for sure. You have to love learning, and you have to make a commitment to that, and so. And what you realize really quickly is, you know, you're giving up going to maybe this event and I missed a few weddings. I mean, there's no doubt that I mean, there was just I committed to to um, to yeah to burying my head in that in those books and so on to get there. But uh, but yeah, but medical school, I'll be honest, once you get in, it's actually a lot of fun. So people should know that. Like so even though you are studying hard. You um, and they often liken it to drinking from a like from a fire hydrant. They just, you know, sort of like you don't you don't sit down in front of the fire hydrant and open up this thing. And, you know, you, you get you get tumbled and blown away by that. Right. You you take little sips. Um, and the good news is the things that matter uh, appear over and over again. So there is some repetition and you start to learn how your learning is layered and you get deeper and deeper. But you started with, uh, yeah, you know, just some of the initial coursework. I mean, it, I entered medical school again with that human, more of that humanities background, but I had taken all the tests and done all the, you know, all the, um, required coursework. And so, um, but I had the advantage of entering a little bit older than my average age of my classmates. I was about 26 when I entered, which by the way, I think is a great age to enter medical school because I had seen some things. I had worked a bit. And so I had made a decision that that is, there's no place I would rather be than in that anatomy lab learning because I wanted to be a great doctor. And there was no question of that. Like I knew why I was there and I knew what I was there to do. So I think, I do think the maturity of a few years helped me to be fully committed to that. Uh, the first day of medical school, well, within the first two weeks, you learn, um, and they introduce you into embryology and, and morphology. So really how to like, how do our early, how does our early cell development inform the way the rest of the body needs to get mapped out? So that was kind of an interesting, 
you know, introduction. And I didn't realize it was, I was, I was ready to like, like, yeah, let's get into that anatomy lab and start doing that. But then they had this really cool process that's worth sharing to people. Cause I think it's a little bit of the art of medicine, but then we went through actually a ceremony and we acknowledged the sacrifice that these people had given to science. They had, they, they had donated their bodies to science for us to have the privilege of learning through their physical vessel how we can learn the proper placement, um, learn about some of their pathology. But eventually, um, we, we tr- approach that with a great deal of respect, um, if you will, and ceremony to, um, to acknowledge what they were giving us. And then we entered into the lab and then we were able to begin to like, yeah, learn and we covered, we wrapped their faces and actually spoke to our cadavers. So people probably don't think that that's a, a thing, but it, it was, um, but it was actually a really important thing because you realize like that, that person was an animate individual, you know, right? They had fam, they had family, they had siblings and, and, and spouses and children probably still on the planet living alongside us. But this is what they chose to give themselves to. So, but you spend, um, you know, typical day, you're in class. Well, in, at that time, the curriculum was much more classroom based. You're learning those basic sciences over again. Some of them like biochemistry and things that you had learned before, you're learning again, but in greater depth and greater speed. And that's really the biggest difference, in my opinion, is like the speed at which they are giving you that information is much more rapid and you cannot possibly absorb it all. Um, but, uh, but you work a lot in groups and learning groups. And so we were, um, so it was really fun and it was always almost like a part social part learning and learning from your colleagues, um, talking and interacting with the, with the content. And so, so that included, as I said, you know, standing over a cadaver and learning how to dissect out the heart and where the vessels are. We learned that together as a team. Um, you might do physiology labs together. Um, so a lot of team-based work, I would say. And then when you get into the clinical part, where you actually learn to yeah, give injections and suturing and so on. That experience is really interesting. In the third year of medical school is typically when people do that. And you go on rotations every six weeks to, to uh, 12 weeks. You're in surgery or pediatrics or family practice. Um, and so you are, you're really like being immersed in a different culture every few weeks. And you have to fit the team of the culture. And as the third year medical student, you're like the lowest person on the totem pole on that team too. And so you learn not just the content and how to suture, but you actually learn, I think, a, probably more about professionalism. You learn more about team dynamics. Um, you learn more about yeah, high pressure situations and making decisions. You don't, you're not asked to make them as a medical student, but you are asked to have integrity because you might be asked, did you get all the information? And you have to say whether you did it or didn't do it and or you can fake it. Right. And if you get caught faking it, that's low integrity and that's not good. And you look really bad if that happens. But you also feel like you look bad if you say, you know what, I didn't do that. And so I learned there, you know, if I didn't do it, I'm a horrible liar. So I'm just better off just saying if I didn't do it, I didn't do it. Um, but I think you learn some really important things. Uh, and if we if we have time, you know, but I, I think some of that does play out. Uh, you know, in your career, um, maybe, maybe just now I'll just say, I'll still, I'll tell one story. You know, people are sitting there thinking about this and those integrity moments. Everyone's going to have it as early, maybe in their career. For me, it's in medical school where, um, where I'm afraid because I'm the low man on the totem pole, but I see something that's wrong. And, and so, uh, so there was this, uh, a case where we had in the OR on the vascular surgery service, University of Chicago vascular surgeons. Consider, you know, they're like very proud of themselves and they should be because they're an outstanding group. Um, that's the group, the movie, The Fugitive is based on the vascular, like Richard Kimball is a vascular surgeon 
at the University of Chicago and it's partially filmed there. So this is like a these guys, you know, they're friends with Harrison Ford and all that. Like, I mean, you know, they, you know, they're they're they they're 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 top of the top for the country and what they do. In one case, we had a patient who um, who I just happened to review the cases for the next day and I came across an allergy in that patient. And it said that they were uh, positive for an allergy to an agent that we use in vascular surgery, almost in every surgery called heparin. And so in the OR, I just happened to be in that case with that pa- with one of the cases that I had reviewed and, and they said, and the lead doctor ordered the heparin. And, and, um, and this is a doctor who was known for having large outbursts if something wasn't going well and they were not happy. Um, and I was terrified at that moment. Cause I was like, well, do I say something or do I not? But at that, but I, but I did because I, and I, I almost, I didn't really think about it that much though. Cause it was like, you know, it's kind of like, I better blurt this out. Cause I was just afraid of what was going to happen. So I blurted out this person's HIPAA, HIPAA positive, which means they have this allergy, which means we can't give that medication, which means we needed to have a backup plan, which did not exist, which meant the whole surgery is now delayed. And this person just went under and so that's not good. That's like a, that's about as bad a start to a surgery as you could have. Um, and so, uh, so we got yelled at and all of that. Um, but, uh, but it was funny. I never, I never got in trouble for it in the back end. Um, and I think it was partly because it was, it was the right thing to do. And so, you know, learned a, learned a lesson there of like doing the right thing. I never got, I never got patted on the back for it, but I also didn't suffer any harm for it. So, um, so, but, uh, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of learning in, in med school. You will be forced to learn about yourself and the content. Um, but I think it's all good. You spoke a lot about the things you learn in rotations, why you do it. But, and from what I've researched, it's one of the most important decisions that a student can make in medical school is what specialty they choose. Can you just go a little bit further in that rotations discussion and medical school discussion and tell us the story of how you decided to specialize in internal medicine? Yeah, sure. The, uh, it's a great question. So, um, yeah, you're, you're, you're getting exposed to the, the, the culture of the practice of these specialties and also the content of what they do. And is it intellectual, you know, so one, are you intellectually curious about it? That that's, that's important Two, do you have the skills? If it's a, if it's a technical skill, if it's like really fine, if it's neurosurgery, for instance, you know, do you, is, do you have the steadiness of hand and that you need to work in small spaces and for very long hours? Um, you know, and can you, and, and are you okay with the pressure of making decisions that are life and death? Because that, that these are just sort of, there's some of these things that I would say are, are core components across all specialties, but they have different nuances in different, in different groups. So one way people decide is like, well, do I like procedures or do I, or do I like what are called often the cognitive specialties like internal medicine or pediatrics where you're not doing as many procedures, but it's more getting that history, thinking about that patient, considering a broad differential and so on. That that's a little bit different on the surgical side where it's only, it's a few things, but you still have to be decisive and you have to take action and your action could be life-saving or life-causing that that's, you know, so there's, so it's high pressure, high reward there, I would say, um, versus the more cognitive specialists like internal medicine or, um, or neurology, for instance, uh, you know, there's specialties there. And then there's these hybrid specialties that are mixed like ophthalmology or maybe dermatology, where it's a mix of knowing a vast amount of knowledge, but also, um, but there's a procedural component to it. Um, and so, so for myself, in terms of, uh, landing on internal medicine, I really was deciding between general surgery, which for me was like the huge, like or some version or maybe subspecialty surgery like urology or something like that. But where, you know, it's a um, huge rush to be able to go, go in there, do something very physical and then rock away with a result of like, yeah, I know this was good. And that patient the next day 
you know, is, is, is sitting there talking with you awake again and, and you feel really good and they, you know, and they really are grateful for what you've done for them versus that. Um, but that might be it, you know, then you're done and then you see them in follow up versus internal medicine where it was, um, it's a longer relationship, more longitudinal care. I might be with you for a decade or two decades of your life. I might see you through the birth of children or your kids getting married or your grandkids graduating from high school. And all of the while, though, taking care of, you know, your, your, you know, keeping your body in tune and healthy while you go through all those things. Um, but we also might go through cancer diagnoses or the loss of your spouse. And, and so, so you, you know, so that's a whole different type of journey. But I just found myself being drawn to the, uh, the longitudinal journey and the way, um, and, and the, um, the behavioral aspects of that, the people for me actually became much more interesting. And I think I, I had to do some soul searching to come to that conclusion, but, um, but I like the thought of having that long-term relationship with the patient, um, uh, and, and being there with them and being, and being able to be with them through that, that life cycle was, was really, was really important. The way that I looked at that, and I think this is a good, like uniform way that all, like if you're a med student looking at this is do the, what I call a prospective retrospective, right? So they like, go look at your career, the 30 year, 35 year career you're going to have. Imagine yourself at that 35 years downstream and then look back at your career that you've just had over the last 35 years and ask yourself, uh, does it have, you know, does that have the day in, day out and the years of, 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 um, of, of, uh, mastery, uh, that you want to look back over and say, I'm really glad that I spent 30 years working on and perfecting this. Um, and then sometimes you end up with like, and where do you have fewer regrets? You know, is it that you weren't here or you weren't there? And that's actually how I landed on internal medicine. Um, just a couple of concrete things I would say. I love working with people. So internal medicine allows you to do that and building relationships. So working with people and building relationships is a, is a huge, is a huge piece. There was great breadth of knowledge in internal medicine, but there was also a really great depth. Like you could go into cardiology or gastroenterology or endocrinology. So I kind of felt like I could go deep if I really wanted to in a specific organ system or area or type of illness. Uh, so there's, you know, so you have, so you have that really that breadth and, and, uh, and depth. And then there's this education piece. Then when I went to med school um, at university of Chicago, internal medicine was, you kind of ran the hospital and, and it was a medicine hospital and a medicine program. And so I got, uh, got to see that exposure. They ran the educational programs, for instance, uh, for the medical students, teaching them how to become doctors. And that grew really, I was really interested in that. It was really, uh, I saw it would be a potentially a privilege to be able to do that. And our, we had great role models there that were doing that. And so all of those things for me, um, drew me to internal medicine. I really appreciate that criteria and the decision-making and, you know, how that all played out for you and just continuing to follow this thread here of your career arc. It's my understanding that after you earn your medical degree, you apply, apply for a residency. That's the next step, right? That's right. Yep, exactly. So then my understanding is that you don't always get your first choice. So that probably explains how you ended up at Stanford, right? Um, <laughs> can you talk a little bit? Can you talk a little bit about the application process and then paint a picture of what your daily experience was like as a resident? You know, the hours you worked, the time spent in the hospital yeah. versus a clinic, your responsibilities and so forth. OK, great. Yeah. Yeah. I will walk you through the whole the, the whole three year journey. But I would just say there is a funny story about Stanford. So uh, but I'll tell you about that. But yeah, you look you do apply to different programs. So the way I approached it was uh, cities that I would want to live that I was willing to live in. Right, I was living in Chicago, great city. So my rule was you better be a better city than Chicago. Right. And so 
So Boston was off the list. No, I'm <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Actually, sorry, but it was. Yeah, I wasn't going to go to Boston from Chicago. Uh, so I was I was thinking heading west or to New York City, to be honest with you. That was like kind of where it was going. I had the, the added complexity that some people may not be aware of. Um, it's a matching program. It's a match. So you go in an interview, but you you match to the program. So they have to pick you and have you on their list. So if they have 10 spots, you want to be in the top 10. Or if they go, let's say their top 10 want to all go elsewhere. Then you want to be like, but somewhere you want to be high enough that you get in there, right? If it's, if it, if they go 20 deep on their list, you want to be in their top 20 and then you want to rank them number one, wherever you want to go first, right? Whatever your number one program is. Um, I had the added complexity that I was going to say that people may not understand, which is I couples match. My wife is a doctor. We met in medical school, uh, right? We, we had all the good stuff, right? Fall in love and everyone who's watched Grey's Anatomy, right? There's call room activity. Yeah. None of that ever happened. Uh, I never saw, I never kissed anybody in the call room, but. <laughs> But it's nice on TV. It looks good. It looks like fun in the call room there. I, I slept in the call room. Uh, that's about all I ever did there. But uh, but I met my wife there. We we uh, uh, we we were couples matching, and so that means it's based on where the two of you can match together, not in the same program, but just in combined programs. So we were very lucky. I was very very fortunate that Stanford was yeah her first choice, not mine. You're right about that. Um, but. But um, but they weren't going to interview me. So they interviewed me there, uh, which I thought was so, so because of her. So there was no question. And I and I'll I'll uh, I'll just jump to the end of this story, which is um, which is they did do that. But uh, but eventually. Right. They did ask me. I became chief resident there. Right. So they so they they I will just say this to people their their systems of how they choose and line that up isn't perfect. Right. But they. But uh, but there's no question that I you know I owe it to my wife uh, to have that opportunity because they really were recruiting her, wanted her to be there, and so we were lucky. The couples match at Stanford, day to day, work hours. I mean, we I was pre eighty thirty or we were pre eighty thirty. So that means eighty thirty was the limitation hours that they said you know what doctors shouldn't work more than eighty hours in a week and they should not work thirty hours in a row or more than thirty hours in a row. I was before that, so. So I worked 38, 40 hours a time. I mean, I mean, I, I was there almost two days in a row kind of thing in the hospital nonstop uh, other than like sleeping a few hours. Um, but I can tell you that, that there's a good reason why they made those changes, because that was not safe for anyone, including myself, trying to drive home. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the 80 hour. Yeah, I mean, we easily blew past. I mean, I, we would joke that we were not even making minimum wage when we added up the hours that we were and, and we were paid to some of the, and, and Stanford residents were paid probably some of the best rates, if you will, in the, in the state of California. But, but we were making below minimum wage when you added up the hours that you worked. So, so it is very long hours, but I will say that time goes quickly because you're learning, it's active and, and, um, and you're doing the real job. So it's, it's, it's actually, it's, uh, it's, it's, it was like a huge, it's a huge opportunity for growth and learning that I would just, you know, I, I would say anyone, even if you go to med school, and you don't think you're going to practice medicine, I would honestly say if you miss out on the residency, you are missing out on like the biggest, most important concentrated chunk of your training. Like you're just you're missing it because because you um, you deal. That's where you deal with the life and death. That's where you perfect and master uh, the specialty. Um, and with that, and, and that's actually where you learn a ton of translatable skills, I would say, such as team management and decision making. And critical thinking, like that's where that happens that you could take to any career path after uh, after that. But you miss on you miss on getting those. Uh, you asked about typical day. So let's talk about the typical day. So, yeah, you know, those days would start early. I mean, you start at, uh, you know, 530 or 6 a.m. to get up, depending on how many patients you're carrying on your service. Um, the, the years are broken up intern 
uh, second year and third year of residency. And with surgery, it goes to five. So you, usually the senior resident in, is the uh, is the fifth year in surgery or fourth or fifth year uh, or sixth year. And then in um, and then in medicine, it's the third year. So you kind of have different duties, but uh, at different years. But um, but as an intern, yeah, you get up early, you got to round on all your patients. You're kind of on the spot. You are closest to the medical students, right? You're just ahead of them. So you're providing kind of um, near peer mentorship and teaching to them. But you're really in that in-between spot uh, and the pivot between, you know, civilian uh, or medical student, you know, kind of about to become doctor. And uh, and then, you know, and then you're already a doctor as that intern and second year resident doing the job and teaching someone else to do it while you're also learning from your senior resident. Um, but you round in the morning, you collect your labs, you talk to the nurses, you find out what the events were of the night this night, and then you present and you present every patient in your service to the team and the attending. And you're sort of critiqued on like how well you did. Did you cover everything? What's your plan? And so you're forced to come up with a plan for every, to address every problem. So it's a, it's a good challenge of organization, integration of, of data. Um, and then there's always with medicine, it's not, there's, these are not robots we're making plans for and working on. We also have behavioral components, substance abuse, depression, anxiety, uh, personality disorders. Right? There's a whole, there's a whole human aspect that you have to account for. Uh, social determinant issues. Do they have housing? Do they have a, you know, are they, they're getting a divorce. I mean, these, all these things all make a difference in these people's lives. And so you have to take some ownership of, of that to help them navigate all of that with their heart attack or cancer diagnosis. So you learn a ton in there. Um, so as I said, I won't take you through the full, the full uh, three to, to, to seven year journey of that, but um, but, um, but you learn a great deal, I would say about human, um, you know, human behavior. Um, and, uh, and then you have to fuse that with what you've learned about the science to make the plan that works. And so, um, but yeah, and it, did I cover like the day Yeah, a little bit more about the day as you go, you do, you round, you go on rounds, you will see your patients. Sometimes you present in front of them, you, in, you include them and have, get their input. Um, and then you lay out the plan. You spend the rest of the day kind of executing the plan, getting the CT scans, MRIs, and so on. You update one another all through the day. You write your notes every day. You have to write your note for every patient. Uh, that's sort of like when you're done with that, you know, it's a little things decompress for the rest of the day. But then you might have to run off to clinic um, and then go see your outpatient clinics that are not in the hospital. Uh, sorry, your, out, your outpatient patients who are not in the hospital. And so, you, um, so you're caring for them and, and kind of practicing a, you know, a whole other type of medicine that's not as acute. Um, and then you go home and you try to eat have some bit of social life, say hello to your spouse or say hi to your kids. And then you uh, go to bed and then you, and you rinse and repeat and do the same thing the next day. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a demanding process, you know, and you're, especially you're bringing up the pay too, and you're making around minimum wage when you add up the hours and considering the costs of going to medical school and becoming a doctor, um, you know, that e adds even more demands onto this period. Yeah. How did you manage the stress? How did you manage those demands? Did you have any system or hacks yeah, or things yeah, that yeah. you There's did given those demands? This. So this is, uh, this, I'm actually really glad you asked that and the way that you asked it too. So there are some hacks on this one. Um, so one I would say is you um, you have to be valuing something else other than the pay because there's other easier ways to make a living. So so, so you can't worry as much about the debt and not what and, and your hourly rate because you are learning so much. So there's a lot of delayed gratification. And if you struggle with that, 
uh, and you're someone who says, no, there's a better way that that's true. There's easier ways to, to do this. And so, uh, so, so medicine, um, has to have, probably have someone who's willing to, 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 to see the long path and really value other things besides the financial rewards, because the financial rewards are pretty delayed. The way that I handled the managing the, the tight finances early uh, in medical, it started in medical school. Uh, the way that I did that is one hack is when you think of, think about every dollar you borrow as borrowing three or four. That's how I did it in my mind. I just said, if I borrow this dollar, by the time I pay it off in 20 years or, or 30 years, it's going to be actually three or four dollars. So did I eat out when my friends all said, let's go eat at X, Y and Z for lunch? I would say. I'll meet you there. I got to go to the microwave and heat up my lunch that I just, that I, that I cooked on Sunday and I made it all Sunday and I'm going to eat that through the rest of the week. That's how I approached. So I almost bought no meals in the cafeteria. I did, I almost went out to eat zero, you know, like I did not eat out, um, um, or, or take that lazier path of like just paying for it with borrowed money. I mean, if someone's paying for your med school, go at it, like, you know, have the, the, the supreme pizza deluxe, but I didn't, I didn't do that. I, I, I made my meals because, um, because I knew and saw it as like, you know, I was saving money. Another good example is like, if you, I love music and I, uh, I had a good CD collection. I, I stopped buying any on all music. Once I started taking loans for med school, uh, because no CD was worth $64 in my mind, unless it was the four disc, you know, set of, uh, of, you know, of, uh, NWA. I just going to want, I want to just be provocative with NWA or something like that, but, but you know, whatever, whoever makes these compilations, that's about it. But, but no, I did, I just decided that I was not going to spend money that didn't need to be spent or I would revalue it as what is it, you know, is it worth the 30 year cost, which is going to be three to four times. And I think that's a good, that's probably a pretty good, a pretty good hack, uh, hack for folks. Um, and then, um, and then I, you know, I, here's the, and here's the final hack. Cause I'm at the other end of this. Like I could pay off my, I still have, and I'm still paying my, my medical school loans today. Right. I graduated from medical school in 2002. And you say, well, Ian, if you could, and I can pay them off. Why don't you, I have the money to do it now. But for one, I like my mindset, as I said, of the growth, like I, 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 I will wait to pay those. First of all, the interest rate's very low. I got that down. Um, so it's the cheapest money that I've borrowed now, but I, um, I like the thought of, of still owing that money and still being able to say that I'm still working on this. This is still a journey. And so I'm going to just hold those loans for as long as I can. And hopefully when they're paid off, it doesn't change my mindset. Um, but, uh, but I think that, I think that's a good hack because achieving financial success does not, that's not an endpoint. Like that is not, that's not going to solve all other problems, right? Or all the rest of your life, right? So, so that's just one component. Yes, it can decompress some things. It can make some things better. But for me right now, I feel like I'm getting more out of still being able to say that I'm paying that and the mindset that it keeps me in is very valuable to me. It's like the competitor. I think I probably learned that as an athlete, right? It's like, did you win a national championship? Okay. Yeah, we did. Are you happy? I mean, I'm pretty happy today. Tomorrow I'm happy. A week later, it's last, that was last week. Like, are we going to go win one next year? Okay. Well, then we should be starting. Like, when do you guys want to start working on that? You know? And some people, I was one of the people said, well, I'll just take a little bit of break. I would do that. But then, but I, you know, but came, but, but was I getting in the gym? Yeah. I mean, but I'm going to go back into the gym and I'm going to start that work. And then, and that's going to add on, you know, add on and make us better next year. So I think there's some, you know, again, good learnings there. And I definitely see the value in having, you know, uh, you know, that's a goal for me still that I'm just not ready to give up. I'm still, I'm still working to pay off those loans for med school. Hey, super quick question. Uh, Ian, is there, was there a cost of living, 
uh, loan that you could get as a resident who was, you know, working below minimum wage? Uh, what did the, we, we, you know, there was an adjustment. I think there was an adjustment to our payment. Actually, we got paid money after residency because of money that they, that was withheld that was not supposed to be. But, uh, and so, um, so I think Stanford, because it is expensive to live there, I think we did get a little help. I think we got a bit of a, a little bit of a stipend to help us afford, yeah, living on the peninsula, which is, you know, is, you know, it's, it's, uh, some of the most expensive real estate, uh, that there is. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, I don't, I don't, but there was no like specific program you could apply to, to get like a specialized loan or anything like that. You know, you could, you could consolidate your loans and reduce your interest rate. But this really, like, I think I did, you know, I, I was lucky that I attended a financial uh, uh, counseling session before entering med school. And so I entered with this, you know, sort of the idea of, of like not putting anything on credit. Like, you know, I just, I never bought anything on credit, paid off all my credit card debt. And then when I was done, I, I haven't carried a credit card debt ever since. Like there's, you know, just, there were just techniques that we were and hacks, as Robert said, that we were, that we sort of learned in that course. And so I took it all to heart, but not, but a lot of people don't get that kind of counseling. Um, so, but you have to, Joe, but what, make me, let me make sure I answered, uh, all of that question. Um, you, you, you were at, yeah, did I answer it? Well, no, I, it just occurred to me that the things that you just articulated, that it is expensive to live on the peninsula. And if you're, if you're making lower than minimum wage, uh, you know, it might be, it might be hard to find a place to live, you know, within it's a problem. Yeah, 60, it's a problem. It's a 60, problem. 60 miles, you know, for sure. It is a, it is a problem that you, um, but Stanford did have a little bit of uh, a lottery for, uh, they actually did have this. I forgot. I didn't do it, but they did have a lottery for, um, it was, there were only so many units. So, you know, that's why it was a lottery. Most people weren't going to get it. Um, but, uh, so yeah, so you, so you could do that. One thing I should say in med school that I didn't talk about was I also took a job in med school. So, which is not easy to do. And I don't recommend it if you're not willing to like, you know, you, you sort of lose on some social life and you lose on some of the experience. Um, and I probably compromised a little bit on the learning cause I actually was the audio visual person for my class. I got to med school early. I found the building facility guys and I just said, what jobs can I do? And, uh, and so then, uh, and so they said, oh, well, we have these, you know, every class has this person that does, um, that runs the projector or the slides for the professor. This is before everybody was on PowerPoint. So like you had to, you know, load a slide tray and all that. And so, uh, I do think it, anyway, just another piece that I would just say, like, you know, so I, you, if you can find those opportunities and you and you have the time and you're willing to make those sacrifices, uh, you can, you know, you can, you can take some of that under your own control. And it's a good point. If you can, um, going to a residency program, it's a good thing to ask about. If you're going to go, most people want to go to a city, they have limited housing, limited affordable housing. Absolutely. Um, if you have a family already, there was some preference for that at Stanford. So there are programs like that that do exist. Yeah. Thanks. I, yeah, I, that's a, you're helping me remember some things that, uh, that I'd forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully we don't bring back the memory of you just eating rice and beans and beans and rice every single day, too. Now, continuing on this discussion, um, now we want to examine the various roles that you've occupied in your career. And the first of which being a physician for the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System as its medical director and the firm that you co-founded, Dr. Demand Professionals. Can you describe to our listeners the responsibilities and day-to-day experience of working as a physician and a medical director, you know, and like we we're talking about medical about residency, the work product you're responsible for, you know, how much time do you spend with patients versus staff and so forth? 
what did you do and how did you spend your time? For sure. That's great. Yeah. So uh, I was coming out of residency. And I had a couple ways to look at this. There are jobs that were coming out um, that were being offered where you it's purely clinical. Right. And you're paid essentially on clinical productivity. And so there are private uh, health systems or large hospitals and practices that I could have could have joined. Um, and then there was the VA, which was really unique and, and staying on as faculty at Stanford. And that was the that was the, the direction that I went. Um, and and I and so with the VA, I did get uh, I think the job that the reason I like the VA job, it's a job that would be very hard to, to find now. But it allowed me to do a few things. One, there was the experience of rounding in the hospital. Right. And taking care of those hospital patients. So I got to do that. I had a couple months every year that I continued to do that through my early career. Um, and it's, and it's something that you learn well as a resident and, and that's, that's being like a hospitalist, let's call it. Right. So I kind of had the opportunity to, to, I wouldn't call myself a hospitalist, but, but there's a career where it's about hospital medicine and I got to still do some of that and practice that type of medicine. Then I also was a general, uh, had my own clinic. So seeing patients in an office, um, developing those long-term longitudinal relationships that I talked about. That was really important to me. So I got, so that was a portion of what I did. That was about 20% of what I did. And then I, w- I had this opportunity to be a medical director and, and medical director is, is I would say what I would call like a pivot position. You can be a doctor who's seeing patients 100% time, but then as you lay, if you, as you layer up into leadership roles, medical director comes, can come pretty quickly where you're put in charge of other people, clinic, maybe nursing staff, other physicians, um, but some combination of that, you know, doc, other doctors and ner- and maybe uh, non non physician staff, um, and that pivot position. I call it that because you're doing some administrative work, like you said, leadership, uh, team development, uh, workforce management, right? So managing the people and 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 their work habits, uh, but also still seeing patients. So that was where I lived for about eight years in that hybrid or pivot position. Um, and it's, uh, and so it's like, a, it's sort of like the entry level leadership role, kind of like next tier up from being full patient care. Um, the roles come from multiple different reasons. I would just say one, one little hack there is if you're willing to do things and work on things that other people kind of don't want that, you know, they don't want to do, or they, um, or they might avoid, or they struggle with, um, that's often an opportunity <laughs> for you. And so I would say, so for me, it was working with homeless veterans. Homeless veterans were seen as a, as a, as a, uh, as a difficult group, tough patients. Um, and a lot of people didn't know what to do with the social issues or the behavioral health concerns, uh, substance abuse and so on. And, um, and I, you know, I, uh, I, I felt like, well, I have been exposed to this. I actually have been, you know, in college, I was exposed to people who didn't have housing. I I would, you know, telegraph and Durand and people's park like that didn't uh, that wasn't intimidating for me, for sure. Um, And uh, and so so I, you know, I I definitely embraced the opportunity to like to take on some tough. I just thought, yeah, these are tough patients. And if I can do this, I probably could do anything. So um, so I, I took that. And so my my career developed along those three pathways um, of like administrator clinician and then educator. Uh, and so that gave me a lot of breadth in that first, you know, first eight years of my career. Um, and I would say now you probably are, can do like two of those kind of, you know, it's, it's hard to do all three now. Um, but, um, but that's, that's, you know, your day is usually divided into like a yeah, clinic, um, uh, rounding in the hospital, uh, which is similar to what I described in residency training. And then if you're an educator, you're doing some work, amount of work with, um, uh, with, um, you know, with your, with your, uh, with your, with your 
with your program, the, the people that are working with you and the students that, you know, that you're guiding around and basically mentoring to, to bring up the next generation of students. Um, and so I was very lucky to get that opportunity to do the teaching piece because I was always interested in that and ended up becoming a um, uh, yeah, faculty mentor for the students at Stanford. You know, I've also read that you spend much of your time as a physician still to this day on telemedicine calls with patients. But first off, is that true? Yeah, I still I still see patients. I'm, I'm much more heavy on the administrative side now as a chief medical officer. Um, but uh, but absolutely. You know, I mean, I so maybe that's good to take a quick step back. So at, at the VA, the other thing I learned actually was telemedicine in developing the homeless program and the outreach program there. Um, I wrote for a grant for rural health, uh, and that's where I stumbled on telemedicine as a modality. And so this is right around 2007, 2008, when the first iPhone came out and we didn't have a camera on it, but, but I kind of knew like one day it's going to have that camera, it's going to intersect. And so I learned as much as I could about that, um, out of interest, not because I thought it would be my career. I just thought this is, you know, this is cool technology in healthcare delivery. Um, and I had a very practical reason to be interested in it because, I saw where you could deliver care that way. And some of my patients that I'm trying to take a mobile clinic to, if I could just give them a device, I could connect with them across distance anytime. And so that, that was an interest. And so that problem, and that ended up getting me eventually recruited to help found that, uh, that, that telemedicine practice of doctor on demand. And so, yeah, so then, so I was, I was always, I was always doing it early in my career and then now building a practice that does only that, um, uh, and so I spend much more of my time now, um, you know, with the recruitment, training and um, and business development of the of the practice. But, yeah, but early on, I mean, I was the first I was the first clinician and saw the first uh, patient uh, virtually on our platform. So with those telemedicine calls, can you describe uh, to us the skills and qualities you had to develop to like specifically do a telemedicine call, call or any tools that you had to learn how to use to be effective yeah. in that kind of patient environment? Yeah. Yeah. So I got, you know, I went to Doctor on Demand early uh, seed round where of their funding round. So this was like we didn't have a fully functioning product. So there was a certain amount of opportunity to help build and design how doctor a doctor would land on the platform and what that platform needed to look like. And then also what was the intake for a patient to come in through the platform. And so, um, so putting those, you know, so getting, putting that experience together, um, you know, you, you, uh, you kind of learn something. So one that it's like, you're running your own show. That's actually how I educated doctors about it a little bit, just like, you know, someone's going to pop on the screen and, and as the doctor, they're going to be a little bit shocked that you're there. And then you need to, um, then you need to actually, um, bring that person, uh, you know, bring that person into a comfortable environment. And so we, uh, so when you look behind me, it looks like a doctor's office. This is, this is important, right? Like that the environment looks familiar to a patient and it conveys professionalism and trust and it's familiar. Um, so that's, that's all deliberate of, of there that that's behind me. So the patient knows and is, and understands that they're in, um, you know, in an environment that's safe and, and, and that there's a professional. And so, and then the way that the doctor, uh, initiates that, the, uh, the, um, the encounter really should set the guidelines. So for instance, we're going to, I'm going to help you. Um, but there may be limitations because we're not in the same room. Right. And so we acknowledge that up front. So that's a really important thing to do. Um, the other skills are really, this is something that I, you know, I taught at Stanford physical diagnosis. So I was like, kind of the bedside diagnosis doctor, you know, like what does that heart murmur mean? And how do you assess uh, volume status of a patient? Meaning look at their neck veins. Are they in heart failure or do they have pneumonia? 
these types of clinical questions require really bedside diagnosis skills. I took that and translated what I knew and was teaching there to medical students, translated it to the, uh, um, a set of guidelines, if you will, for telemedicine, for virtual care, and, and kind of had to make it up because nothing like that existed before. And so that included, yeah, the ability to complete the exam. And how do you do that at distance? How do you use the patient and guide the patient through feeling for the lymph nodes and so on? And just thinking about how to do that and combining, I think, my the educational background I had of, of explaining things to high-level learners who are medical students, but but are much more like civilians than doctors when they start an intermed school, right? So figuring out how to like help them bridge that, I think helped me with figuring out what were the guidelines and what was the uh, the protocols that doctors should follow to make sure that these clinical clinical interactions were going to be high value and give the doctor the information that the doctor needed to make clinical decisions. Um. <clears throat> Well, I'm, you know, first of all, Ian, I think, you know, thank goodness that you you founded that business. You know, the, the pandemic clearly put new stresses on the medical industry. And, you know, you were you guys, by you know, were, because you got this going earlier, were well positioned to deliver the remote care people actually needed. So I'm wondering if you can um, opine a little more on what it, what is the day-to-day experience of being chief medical officer like, and then can you contrast that to, you know, if, if you can just to like what it's like to be a physician in a hospital making the rounds and so forth. They, I mean, they, they probably are really different, but I uh, just would be interested to learn more about that yeah. CMO role. Yeah, they're really different, but I will say uh, I do. So CMO, let's take on that one. And then I think some differences probably require some comment comment on like, the health systems that we all work, that we, that we, that doctors are sort of raised to work in. Um, but what I would say about chief medical officer, you know, it's a, it's a role that often is defined by the, a bit by the skill set probably of the individual who assumes the role and in what type of healthcare organization they're in. So my, my guess is that CMO within a health plan or a pharmaceutical company might be a little bit different than what, than what I do. But, um, the, but my role as chief medical officer at, at Dr. On Demand um, was really, you know, you have the full responsibility for the care delivery, right? The clinical product, if you will, that is put forth and the quality of that product, um, the, uh, the culture that, that, uh, that defines, you know, the values and so on like that, that if you're the founding chief, you know, founding medical director or chief medical officer, like, like I was like, I think you get to define a lot of that. You kind of get to outline, well, here's what we want to do. And, um, and so, you know, and for, and for myself, uh, part of that was making sure that it was around access to care, uh, high quality and low cost, which is called the triple aim. Okay. And so these are good things for people interested in, in healthcare should, should know. And, and that, that equation is value equals, uh, access plus quality and probably plus patient experience in a digital health company over the cost of all of that. Okay. So that's the equation. And, um, and I would add one more piece to the equation, which is also physician uh, sustainability and satisfaction, like the clinician satisfaction is super important to me. And so, uh, so the CMO's role is to make sure that that workforce is respected, cared for, nurtured, and, the, and that they can perform at the, at, at the same way a coach makes sure you can perform at the highest level of ability and that you're challenged to do that. I, I would probably say that I borrowed for, you know, some of the motivational uh, you know, pieces um, and factors from my coaches to say like, well, this is, you know, this is part of my role. I'm a coach. 
I'm 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 referee, you know, setting the settings, you know, making sure the rules are followed. Uh, sometimes that means I have to penalize people too and say like, well, you know, you got to go to the sin bin here. We got to sit you out for a few minutes, right? Like, or or what have you. Um, yeah, right. Is so that, set is up that the, a rugby term? Did you just do... <laughs> it is sin bin. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be there. Yes. Yes. If you're throwing too many punches in a rugby game, you can be placed out for a few minutes to, to cool off is, is, and that's what we call the sin bin. Yeah, um, one might be okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. So, um, yeah. So, you know, so I think these are, these are some of the roles of the chief medical officer, but then there's other roles too. So one, I, um, chief medical officer also represents the company externally. So do you do a lot of external facing presentations, webinars, and I would say thought thought leadership. So that you have to have a certain amount of president presence either locally, but that could be statewide or across your whole specialty, or it might be nationally. And so uh, so physicians are sometimes measured on well, what's your reputation, and is it at the national level or international level? And if so, that's what usually in an academic medical center triggers. Oh. They are full professor versus being an associate or what have you. Um, now, because of what I've done outside of, is all outside of Stanford. It doesn't, you know, that's why I'm still assistant professor, but because I've chosen a different path. But, but, um, but I would say, you know, given the reputation at this point, like, you know, it's, it's national for, for what we're doing, as you said, with the need of, you know, the, the need that we have for telemedicine in the middle of a, of a global pandemic. There's no question that it, that accelerated. Uh, the last piece I'll say is business development. So business development is a big piece. So, you know, there's there's, um, you know, helping clients understand how to translate what they knew as traditional bedside medicine to actually being of value in caring for their population. So large employers or health plans that have large populations of people are very interested in that triple aim of high you know, quality and low cost. Um, but also access. So they understood, you know, the way I see that and, and, and practice that is that chief medical officer role is through telemedicine, telemedicine or digital health practice like doctor on demand. Um, so, but you kind of have to check, you know, you have to check a lot of those boxes to, to do that well and credibly. Um, and then I oversee, you know, publication, you know, the publication program to that are the peer reviewed data and content that prove that this actually does do, you know, does achieve that triple aim. Is it? Did you have to understand very much the uh, the organization you just mentioned? Sort of like the BD, almost like partnership with with other bigger organizations. Did you have to understand those organizations pretty well in order to be able to sort of make the argument that was persuasive, or did you just sell your stuff and hope that they like it? <laughs> yeah, you know, there's, there's a, <laughs> it's a great a great uh, marketplace reality, right? Which is like we could just make our stuff. Uh, that might be a little bit more of the software model. Hopefully I don't get myself into trouble for saying that, but, uh, but, but, you know, but software sales friends of mine will say that sometimes is they're like, well, you know, it, like, you know, it works well enough. Right. And so, and we can sell this and then, you know, but then also it, it you know, it's, um, it's, uh, but it doesn't do everything right. It often doesn't do everything that's needed to like deliver what, you know, what the full suite of healthcare services that are, that are needed do. We can just use EHRs as a really good example of that. Like, you, you know, electronic health records help on a lot of stuff. But most doctors don't like them and, and it doesn't necessarily make them more efficient in doing their, their work. Um, but absolutely, Joe, it was, you know, part of the role, uh, of, uh, of my, for myself as a chief medical officer would be to understand them and their constraints or challenges in terms of how they, how the system is built and fitting within that system to incentivize the doctor to do the right thing, to incentivize maybe the doctor to, to save on the cost. Um, 
and 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 not be penalized when they save on cost, right? And then and 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 if you're the plan, like how and also having a great experience for the patient, right? So it's it's a it's a complicated equation to make all of those things meet. Um, but yeah, but that was my part of my role was to help figure out how to do that. And we 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 took the approach of we're gonna, we're going to actually step outside of the uh, the traditional reimbursement system, and we're not going to be what's called fee for service. So we didn't make fee for service billing. We don't bill more based on the complexity and we don't bill more because we do more for the patient. We um, we actually uh, you know, we actually um, said, well, you know, there's just a flat fee for the visit. We're not going to upcode and we'll be worried about that. We just want to provide great service and we're going to do that efficiently. We'll figure out the efficiency side of it. As long as you can pay us this, we think we can do it affordably and lower costs and we can do it at high quality. Uh, anyway, so I'm just just using Doctor on Demand as the example, but absolutely, that that's the challenge is helping them understand that you can do it, convincing them of that. That was a pretty good size of my role. I was I was evangelical about it pre-COVID of like having to kind of tell people and, and convince them to get religion on this. Post-COVID, I would say people are you know everybody had to get religion on it regardless of what I said, you know. So I just kind of um, kind of said, okay, well, this is how we, you know, they some more now explaining how we do it. Um, I think people understand that it's a great experience. They can, you know, they can trust it. Um, but now they probably have to kind of now figure their way through all of the other competitors who have come in post COVID to say like, well, we can do that too. Now they kind of have to figure out where the quality is. Um, but I, but I think it's overall a very good thing for our healthcare system, which many people in the system would admit doesn't work as well as it, as it needs to right now for our patients. You've touched on it a little bit in this conversation, but now I want to shift to talking about the intangible benefits of the thousands of hours you invested on the rugby pitch, you know, training, treating, competing, running, so much contact, so much hitting. Our audience is interested whether the sensibilities developed as an athlete are transferable to post-sports careers. So for that, I'm going to turn the mic over to Sean. Yeah, you know, we've heard a lot about kind of the you know the, the qualities and, and the advantages that you get as a student athlete, and so just love to hear. Obviously, you you know as a doctor, obviously a very high performance role where you've got to perform, and then on top of that, an executive, at, you know, one of the fastest growing companies. So I'd love to get a, a better sense. You know, first of all, do you feel like what you learned as a student athlete has helped you in your roles in the workplace. And then second, you know, you touched on some of the, the things that you got from Cal rugby and obviously there's core values in the program. You talked about continuous improvement, how you won the national championship and you're already thinking about the next championship. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of, you know, a, did, you know, is it, is it truth that you got uh, some competitive advantages from your experience as a student athlete, but also like, what did you pick up from your time at Cal rugby that's helped you be so successful in your career? Yeah. Yeah. No question. Um, the, uh, yeah, I think, I think the one, you're challenged as an athlete, as a student athlete, right. You know, sometimes you don't feel like going to practice at the end of a long day and trekking up to strawberry Canyon, you know, up the whole hill. And then you're like, and then we're going to run, you know, and then we're going to get tired and you're going to feel like throwing up and then you're going to, and then I'm going to let you recover for a few seconds because this is a bit scientific. People probably don't know this about the rugby team, but they, <laughs> they're not guessing, you know, they're not just, they're not just masochists. They're, they know that to let you recover and catch your breath and then make you work hard again is actually what builds those championships, right? Like I, I, you know, I think a lot of us probably saw that and was like, Oh, I, I, I saw Jack Clark watching us struggle. And he, the whole point is to wait till we want to quit. And then, and then, you know, push us a little harder and then give us a break and then make us jump right back into it. There's no, I mean, it's, it's, 
And, uh, you know, and so I think that's probably, there's probably coaching books on that, um, <laughs> or there should be if there, if there are not, and he, he, or he should write one. Um, but, uh, but, uh, so there's no question that I think the, the, you know, embracing the hard work, but also embracing the, like pushing yourself to that limitate self-limitation or your, your self limits, and then being willing to go a little bit beyond that to see, well, how far can I go? But then having the discipline though, to also say, okay, wait, this is, a, you know, now I need to pull back. That's the hard part. I think we kind of, we, we count on our coaches to help us with the like, okay, let's pull back a little bit. And now I want you to go again. Um, so I, I actually think about a fair amount of that when I'm lead, with my medical directors and, you know, the leaders in my practice that I'm working with, that's, I use that similar philosophy with them. The other thing I would say is um, what you're building when someone, when you ask someone to go to the point of failure and then pull back and recover and then go to the point of failure again is you're building grit, you know? So, so I think there's no question that, that, that um, there's some really nice books on it. We talked about growth mindset, but, but grit is a book uh, that I think applies very well to, to athletes. There's no question um, that getting comfortable um, with being uncomfortable is a big, is a, is just, it's a big part of it. Medical, it just turns out I learned that as a student athlete. And I think all student athletes learn that, um, if they have good coaches or if they push themselves appropriately, that is one of the most translatable skills I would argue in your professional life as a leader, but also as a, yeah, you know, front frontline agent or what have you, you know, just kind of going out and, you know, frontline sales and you're going out there and you're getting doors slammed in your face, like having that, that grit and being able, being willing to be in an uncomfortable place and learn from it and then, and then, and fail or succeed coming back with the learnings to improve. That's, that's, um, that probably that is like part of the most important secret, you know, kind of secret sauce that you could have. The other thing I would say is, um, is the discipline around, um, of, you know, showing up for practice and doing something that's outside of your studies and outside of partying with your friends or what have you like, but, but actually committing to something else that is, um, that's hard to do is, and just, and I think if you can just do it for two years, I'd say, do it. Like you, you should do that in high school. Cause that will probably predict your ability to do it in college. And I would encourage anybody to, to do, uh, or everyone to do a sport, whether it's club or not or something, but, or, or, or join a club, you know, but do something outside of your, just your, just your coursework, um, so that you can build that, you know, that grit and that commitment, uh, to, to something else. And then the final piece that I think translates, um, there's more probably, but I'm, you know, I'm just, I didn't write these down. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, the fellowship that I think I learned with rugby is something that I think it's in all sports, but rugby has that unique way. I think of it's like, it's just part of the sport. It's part of the post game. You go hard against an opponent and then you have the social where you then hand them a drink or feed them dinner after the game to say, look, we went at it pretty hard. We even got it. Yeah. We even, you know, I threw, you know, I threw an elbow, you threw a punch or whatever, or you, you know, you gave me a hard tackle, but you know, that was the game. And now we're all about something else bigger outside of the game. And that to me is, um, that's probably uh, another like secret sauce that I definitely am using with my team. Again, it's not all about finances. It's not about buying additional houses. Like we, we have a mission that's around, um, yeah, transforming healthcare delivery in this country and, and doing it in a way that benefits the patients, but also is sustainable for the, the practice. And so, um, I, I feel like those are all very translatable. And if the athletes, student athletes, uh, recent graduates and so on watching this, um, haven't heard this before, you know, 
in professional life, those, those commercials about professionals being successful, you know, student athletes being more, more successful as professionals. That's true. I mean, I think one of the most evidence-based, uh, um, um, uh, backgrounds that you can, that you can find is whether about someone who's been professionally successful is whether or not they actually played collegiate sports. So, so that is something that I would say I know. And the people that I talk to that hire at, at executive level and so on, they find all of these things, all these translatable skills in student athletes. And they just, and then, and they just kind of take them for granted. I think at this point that they are going to be there, like that person is going to be able to collaborate, work in a team, eat. They're going to be able to follow the other leaders if a leader makes a decision, this is very um, applicable to rugby. A player makes a breakaway. That may not be the right move, but if that's their move, the rest of the team's got to get with them and get on their hip, and it makes it the right move. That's the kind of thing that I think builds successful companies. Um, it's not that the leaders are always brilliant making all the right decisions. It's that the people that support them make every decision the right decision by executing after the decision's been made. Uh Ian, I just want to do a quick time check here. We have one final closing question. Uh, do you have time for maybe three minutes? Let's do it. So you uh, I, just another quick uh, footnote. You were just referencing the book Mindset a minute ago. Uh, that's uh, Stanford professor Carol Dweck who wrote that great book. Everyone should read that. Um, and, you know, as you know, like 98 percent or so of our student athletes go pro in something other than their Sport when they graduate Cal. Um, and we've heard poignantly from this group at the Big C Society that this transition of self-identity really from athlete to the post-sports you is really, really hard. And people have described feeling untethered, you know, deeply uncertain about who they'll become, how life will unfold, first steps to take, all this, you know, and we're just wondering if like your mature self could give some, you know, general guidance to your 22 year old self. Like, what would you say? Uh, it's great. Yeah. First I'd say, don't panic. You are, um, you don't know how valuable you are in the marketplace yet. Uh, but other people do. So this is why you should not panic. I'd also say where you are on your trajectory at graduation, um, is not, uh, has, has no prediction probably of where you're going to be, uh, you know, in 20 years or 25 years. I, and I, and I wasn't able to envision the things that I was going to do later in my career. I never would have imagined, I could not have imagined any of this or written it down like that. That's, that's, if you're, a um, you know, if you're have the confidence, if you're able to have confidence in yourself, if you're able to not panic and if you're able to chart the course of, you know what, I'm going to set a high goal. I only can't get to that goal in the short term, but I can see some of the steps and I'm willing to put in the hard work that will build me up to where in 10 years I will be there. You will, you'll do it. Like there, I have no doubt that you will do it because that's exactly what I did after, you know, after I kind of saw it, it took me a year or two after college to kind of get that confidence and to get through the panic stages and to, and to build a platform. I was like, okay, I can, I'm making a living now, but is this what I want to do? And then, then make your decision um, and be very honest with yourself about that decision. Um, even if it doesn't become clear until a couple of years after graduating, if you're honest with yourself when you make that decision, there's no question that when you plot that 10 year course, let's just say you'll achieve it. It's just, you know, it's just step by step being willing to put in the work. You'll be able to do it. And, um, and well, one uh, of the things yeah. we're doing here for, for as an example is we're showcasing people like you 
and lots and lots and lots of other golden bears from different sports all in one place to make the point that indeed it does unfold the way that you just described and you will get there. So, um, there, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot more here we could talk about. Ian, uh, I'm just wondering um, if anybody wants to get in touch with you after listening to this, uh, how, how could they reach you? Should they reach you through social media or email or? Yeah, link, LinkedIn is a great way to do it. Uh, but my email is itong, T-O-N-G, at doctorondemand.com. And they can email me and, uh, you know, I'm a huge, it's, I love this program. Thank you guys for doing it. You know, this is, uh, it's a great way to, to connect us all. Uh, we share we share a campus. We share some experiences. We shared some classrooms. We share some learning, um, and uh, and I think we can look out for each other. Uh, you know, one another's future success too. So this is awesome. I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to join you. Well, Ian, thank you so much for being here. And from one Cal rugby man to another, it's really a pleasure to be having this conversation and the experiences you shared, the insights you have, the hacks and steps you've taken in your life to get where you are today is truly a gift. And I'm very excited for our listeners to be able to have that gift with them for the rest of their lives. So truly, thank you. And go Bears. Go Bears. Go Bears. What amazing insights from Dr. Ian Tong. Some of the key takeaways that stood out to me were his lifelong commitment to learning, his lessons on integrity, to own your mistakes, and speak up when you see something wrong, even if you feel like it might sting in the short run, and the discipline and grit that he learned as a student athlete to find that point where you wanna quit. Push a little harder, let yourself recover, and then do it again. Ian explaining his journey to transform healthcare delivery in America informs and inspires me. I hope you got that too. You can find the podcast, show notes, and additional content and resources on the Spotlighting Episodes page at bigcsociety.org forward slash spotlighting. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, please subscribe, comment, and share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can also support us by making a gift at bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. The Big C Society is a very efficient, mostly volunteer organization and a registered 501c3 charity. Each donation of $500 supports one episode, although donations of any size are welcome. Lastly, if you played varsity sports at Cal and you haven't connected with us on LinkedIn, join us. Send a connection request. Our LinkedIn network is comprised of thousands of Cal varsity athletes and alumni who are among the most productive citizens of the world, just like Ian. I'll see you in a few weeks on our next amazing episode. Thank you for listening and go Bears!